Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Let's talk about Marie Curie. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1895, the National Trust was founded in Britain. Physicist Wilhelm Conrad Röntgen accidentally discovered X-rays. Alfred Nobel's will established the Nobel Prize. Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake premiered. Volleyball was invented in Massachusetts. Frederick Douglass died at the age of 77. Catherine Lee Bates published America the Beautiful. And on July 26, 1895, Maria Slodowski and Pierre Curie, brought together by literal magnetism, were married. And here's your 30-second summary with a certain amount of apology. I was a little product of the Polish aristocracy. Because I was a girl, I could not go to university. My dreams in France were realized, and twice I won the Nobel Prize, polonium and radium and radioactivity. Maria Salomea Sklodowska was born on November 7, 1867, in Warsaw, Poland, to Vladislav Sklodowski and Bronislava Boguska Sklodowska. Oh, I should get points for I'm like names. sitting here, I'm like silently applauding you. That's I wrote amazing. them phonetically, That's so good. I cheated. Yeah, you did good. She's the youngest of five children, one boy and four girls. Now, a brief word on Poland itself. It had had a king until 1795. We've actually already met him. Catherine the Great's boyfriend, Stanislav Poniatowski, and 63. The kingdom had been getting too powerful for all of its neighbors. A very long story, very short, very long and very short, <laughs> Poland was divided up among the three superpowers, and Warsaw was in the Russian section, unfortunately. And I can only describe this situation as boots on the neck. A few years before our Manya, as she was nicknamed, was born, there had been an unsuccessful rebellion by the Poles against the Russians, who did not play. Thousands of Poles were punished for it. Siberia, prison, seizure of goods. You know, the security guards, mm -hmm. right after a crime, are super alert. And that's the position that society's in right now. So as a result, Russia set out to crush the Polish culture completely. You're all Russians now. No speaking Polish, don't teach it to your children, street signs are now Russian only, Polish books are confiscated, informants welcomed. Yeah. How you like me now? Yeah, I, not much. No, thank you. So both of Manya's parents were running great risks right now, every day, by teaching in secret Polish language and history classes on the sly. Such trouble. They could get into, their students could get into... If the authorities ever got wind of this, but the dream, everybody's dream, everybody's secret dream, was in independent Poland again. Mm -hmm. And the only way they could get that is if their the next generation was raised with that same sense of nationalism yep. and, and country pride. And they had to know who the Polish authors were and the Polish history. But the Russians wanted to erase it. Yeah, that. exactly. And you don't know who's on your side. That's the scary part. So Mama and Papa were both teachers. Mama in the relative obscurity of a private girl's school. <laughs> so helps, I guess, to be a girl. But poor Papa taught boys at a government school where he was under the thumb and the eyes of the authorities all the time. They're always popping up, trying to trip you up into saying something subversive. I mean, he's teaching math and physics. <laughs> How much subversion can you do? You know what? For someone like him, who is who had deep pride in Poland, yeah, you could probably slip it in anywhere. Oh, that's true. Well, he had to develop this kind of dual personality. Inside, he's this rebel professor, and outside, he's the perfect government functionary. 
and I think got to take the toll on you. You got to keep it all in all the time. That's so stressful. I know. Well, Mama and Papa really didn't plan to teach little Manya to read too soon. Seven or eight will get started. Why don't we focus on learning by doing, by observation? I love them already. <laughs> the Montessori people. No, this yeah, reminds you... me of Frank Gilbreth mm-hmm. in Cheaper by the Dozen, mm-hmm. you know, Lillian Gilbreth's yeah. husband. Anything can be an opportunity. Yeah. So intelligent baby of five kids, <laughs> little Manya was reading out for. And reading without Sesame Street. What's the latest incarnation of that? Bubble guppies? Bubble, 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 guppy, guppy, guppy. Oh my god, I love that show. Okay, I <laughs> never, I was at my sister's house and heard it, and I was like, what is this? Bubble, guppies. Your youngest child is 11. Yeah. How it, do you know that? It was on. On what? Nickelodeon? Oh. Maybe? When he was that, I mean, he it was Oh, I thought end. it was a new thing. No, okay. Oh, no, 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 no. It was on. It was, and I, you know, I think I'm a mermaid. Like in my head, I'm a mermaid. So it's underwater. So I really loved it. <laughs> Things we learn about Susan. Well, look at my necklace. This is audio, but what's on I my necklace? I have one contact in. Oh, I couldn't possibly <laughs> tell you. Mermaid. Oh, on a on a Scrabble tile. Oh, that's cute. I know. I love it. Anyway, uh, that would be off the beaten path. So, little Manya went off to primary school, where honestly, she was pretty well the star pupil, despite her age, regardless. She is one of those people that seems to absorb knowledge by osmosis. The science terms begin. The science terms begin. The process of gradual or unconscious assimilation of ideas and knowledge. Not, speaking of cartoons, Uh the cartoon Osmosis Jones. (laughs) Have you heard of it? Okay, that one I have never heard of. It stars Chris Rock as a white blood cell. Oh my gosh. Osmosis? Is this like Osmosis a, Jones. Is this just like a one-shot deal? Or a, is it an animated? I think it's a movie. Because that sounds awesome. So anyway, Chris Rock. Is a white blood cell? Is a white blood cell. Okay. I love that. I would do a Chris Rock impersonation, but I don't have one. I don't either. Yeah. I don't have very many men. <laughs> well, well. <laughs> i take that sentence out of context. So here's the thing. Remember, this school and many others were defying the government, the illegal overlords, as the people saw them. These kids were learning Polish language and history 100% against the law. And like kids of today practice fire drills. The girls in Manya's school practiced, I guess you'd call it, inspector drill. Inspector drills. The inspectors would come in and they would walk into a classroom and pull a student and start asking them questions. You know, and they liked to pull Manya because she's little, but she was really smart. Yeah, they had a protocol. The oldest girls, they were always sitting in the back, like Little House on the Prairie. The oldest girls went down the rows, and everyone put their Polish books in their aprons. Mm-hmm. There was an undisclosed secret location. The oldest girls ran out, hid the Polish books, came back in. Everybody had their sewing out by the time, in this particular case, that Manya remembers in mm-hmm. her autobiography. Right. Um, they were working on buttonholes. And I tell you what, this reminds me so much of when I used to have a boss that had no idea what I did. No idea what I did. Uh-huh. And so he would come behind my screen and there would be boxes swirling on the screen and he'd be like, well done. Good. Okay. So I'm just imagining this male inspector coming in. All the little girls are sewing buttonholes. And he's like, excellent work. Like, whatever that is. So I, so what, it's the same buttonholes that the last inspector saw. They yeah. haven't even done any more on it. No freaking idea. No. Um, so the inspector asked questions, and Manya hated to be called on. Hated it. He asked her to say the Lord's Prayer in Russian. I've got a link to that in the show notes, by the way. Oh. The list of czars. So have you been learning your Russian history? Mm. And who rules over us? 
was a question. And think about how hard that is when you fully know what you're supposed to say. But you don't want to say it, but you kind of have to say it. Also, you're 10 years old. (laughs) It's hard. And so she finally had to say, His Majesty Alexander II, Tsar of all the Russias. But you have to say it with great enthusiasm. And not vomit while you're saying it. Correct. And and be apologizing and your fingers crossed behind your back. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. I'm so sorry. So she didn't break down until the guy left. Poor little thing. She cried. Well, yeah. That's stressful. The whole Russia-Poland dynamic reached its finger right into the house, though. Papa and the native teachers like him were being replaced with Russians. I don't think Papa let his guard down exactly. I mean, there was known hostility between him and his boss. Don't get me wrong. But I think that's like pheromones or philosophy, maybe. I don't know. But Papa was forced out of his job. And the problem is they lived in what's called a tied residence. So they had to move also into cheaper accommodation. And they had to take in student boarders. I, I have read 10. I have read 20. That's a lot. They're both overwhelming. I know. No kidding. They're everywhere. And it, the house is not huge. So the boarders get first dibs on the beds. So they were sleeping in the dining room, the living room, wherever they could. And helping out a lot around the house. Yeah. However many kids there were, they did bring enough money into the house to live. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, they also brought something else. They brought typhoid into the house. Two of Manya's sisters, Branya and Zosha, did contract the typhus. Um, Branya did manage to recover, but unfortunately, Zosha did not. Of a disease that is now treatable with a course of antibiotics. How many times in our recordings do we say that? I know. And just a year and a half later, Mama died of tuberculosis, and she had been suffering from this since about the time Manya was born. And she had always tried to keep her children safe. They always had to live in close proximity. They used separate dishes. Um, her mother never hugged and kissed her, even though so she never had that physical, you know, long-term physical contact with her mother. But she was just trying to protect her. Yeah, I know. So tuberculosis, now treatable with antibiotics, although tuberculosis, you have to take months worth of them. Months, even now. And not to scare anybody, but it looks like typhoid is getting harder to treat again. And tuberculosis, too. Ooh. Antibiotic resistance. Any scientists out there, I think there is a wide-open field for a brand-new <laughs> antibiotic. I'm sure you already know this. Right. If you're qualified <laughs> to make one, you probably already know this. Well, poor little Manya. For sure, you know, more changes are coming. Manya went on from her grammar school. Grammar school, elementary school, is always this cozy little family kind of place, isn't it? Manya's teacher had suggested that Manya stay back. At this point, her mother had just died, and little Manya was in a depression. It was a situational depression, and emotionally she was really withdrawn. So the teacher thought maybe she should stay back a year and just, you know, ease, do this year all over again. But Papa thought differently and he said oh no 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 I'm going to put her ahead and I'm going to put her in the public gymnasium school because it's got a stricter educational standards and that's how she switched schools. She went off to gymnasium 13 not as I first thought a place that smells like 80 years of gym socks. <laughs> I know that's the first when I read it too I was like gymnasium that sounds physical. <laughs> but no it's in Poland and Germany a gymnasium is more like a prep school you know, mm. very focused on academics and quite anti-Polish, as it turns out. So on one hand, Manya and her friends took care to spit on this memorial every morning on their way to school. (laughs) It honored Polish people who had served the Russians, so they made a point. I mean, if they forgot, they would double back and spit on it, even if they were late to school. But they know not to speak Polish in the street and to make sure who was around before you talked at all in any language. Get this. One time, she stayed up all night to comfort one of her friends whose brother had been caught by the authorities and was executed at dawn. These are middle school age children in a vigil for somebody's brother mm-hmm. who's about to be killed. Yeah. 
The Russians weren't joking around. Harsh reality. Very harsh. Well, Manya was an excellent student. She still had that amazing ability to absorb new information. And she had developed quite a talent for concentration, I think, because of all those people in the house all the time. <laughs> she'd lay the book on the table, and she'd make a triangle with her head and her two elbows on the table, like a little a little visual tent uh-huh. there, and set up shop and heard nothing and saw nothing. And her sisters thought that was super funny. And once built a framework of all the chairs in the house around her. While she was studying. And she didn't even notice yeah. until she stood up. To go to the bathroom or something. And they fall, fell down. She's like, you're stupid. <laughs> Can you imagine being able to have that level of... Con- it's kind of like when you're reading a book and you're totally wrapped up in it, except to the nth degree. Okay, so I have to say, I must have had that concentration as a child. Ask my mother about the time they had to get a ladder, climb to my second story window, and break the window to get my attention out of a book after they locked themselves out of the house once. Oh my god! I didn't hear the phone. I didn't hear the knocking. I didn't hear the yelling. I heard nothing. And they just meant to knock on the window where they knew I was reading. Uh-huh. And unfortunately, my dad broke it when he put the ladder up. Ooh. Didn't hear the cursing either, did I? No, I didn't. Uh, as far as I know, that window might still be broken. It's a big, weird window. But anyway... Wait, wait, wait. The $64,000 question. What was the book? Gosh, I don't even know. Probably Little House on the Prairie. Probably. It could be anything. (laughs) It doesn't even matter. Well, by the time Manya was 16, she was done with school. And she was the third valedictorian in the family. They had to be, like, the best. They were very intelligent. But when Hella came in second in her class, and it was, like, a major disappointment. So, anyway, the gold medal was her first award in her career, but it certainly wouldn't be her last. And finally, finally, Papa looked with his eyes at his daughter who was pale and nervous and stressed out and honestly kind of depressed. She'd been grinding these grades. She'd been working hard, harder than anyone, honestly, in his family. And that's saying something. Mm -hmm. He finally saw, and he arranged for his studious daughter to have, I have to say, the most glorious gap year I've ever heard of. She went to the country. She visited relatives. She swam and walked and... Just picked wildflowers. At first, she slept like hard sleep, mm-hmm. and then she like came out of it again. The situational depression is is popping its head again. But she came out of it, and she's it's just country. Like think sunshine and butterflies and birds. Yeah, she met peasants. She rode horses. She uh, stayed with the countess. I she had this very active social life. The, the one of the houses she stayed at, there was parties all the time. She stayed out all night. At parties, dancing, wearing out her shoes. (laughs) I love this one story where some guy, they sent him on a fake errand and they tied all his furniture to the beams of the ceiling. So he came back and everything, he looked like, what? The freshman year of college without actual classes. Yeah. If they had had saran wrap, I'm (laughs) sure something would have gotten saran wrapped. But so, yeah, she went to this thing, I think this is good too, called a Kulig. So how do I explain this? It's a singing, feasting, drinking, slaying party that travels from house to house, picking up more and more and more and more people as you go. And then you get to the last house, and then you dance until 8 in the morning. I love that. Manya loved it, Actually, too. subdivisions, I know you don't live in them, but they do those. It, do what? Do Kooligs? Well, we don't call them Kooligs. You should, because that'd be cool. <laughs> One person does the appetizer, and then the next person does drinks, and then the next house, and everybody goes from house to house to house. What do you know? I know. Some subdivisions, they're themed. So they get dressed up in costume, like 50s housewives or 50s TV shows or something. Well, man, if you guys have that in your neighborhood, send us a picture. 
We'd like to see your coolings. Oh, wait. Finally, something Beckett likes about the suburbs from afar. Afar. It's going to be good. Well, gap year, as we use it today, implies that at the other end, there's going to be some kind of college. Mm. Alas, no girls allowed in college in Poland. You know, find a nice boy and settle down. Why don't you? Russian authorities, I would like to alert you now to what is happening right under your nose. <laughs> Manya and her sisters, as well as, honestly, about a thousand other brave mm-hmm. souls. I think mostly women. Yeah, I do. Because think. the boys could go to college. Yeah. Uh, they participated in an underground university, and I've seen it most often translated as floating, but also flying and winged university. I kept, every time I read it, I saw Hogwarts in my head. Well, they met in secret in different locations, not in the air, sorry, to study um, mostly science, anatomy, biology, botany, and then they, they would talk literature and politics. But not only that, get this, they collected books, Polish books, and taught poor children or factory workers or shop assistants to read and to think, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is more subversive than reading, I suppose. But uh, so much trouble they could have gotten into. No excuse for youth, honestly. You're 16, proceed to the execution. I mean, they don't care. She was part of this thing called the positivity movement. Revolution is not the thing. Gradual improvement is where we see that we can make a difference mm-hmm. and so you know you teach one she right. teaches one exponentially so on, so on. and so on right and so on. right so Manya self-educated herself in addition to this in so many other subjects and she read whatever she could get her hands on but it, it just you know it wasn't enough it wasn't enough no and it wasn't an existence they could keep and, you know she and Branya were doing these classes and tutoring but there wasn't enough money coming in. They they yeah. needed a plan. These two brilliant minds. Branya wanted to be a doctor. And Manya wanted to be a scientist. You can't do that in a floating university. Or in Poland. Or in Poland. Yeah, that's true. You could learn those things. But what good does it do? But you can't, yeah, apply them. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they made a deal. They made a scheme. Branya, who was older, would go to France. Where women were training to be doctors. That's Branya's dream. Mm-hmm. So Branya would go first. And Manya would work and send Branya money to support her. And then, when Branya was done, and she was a doctor, and she was earning money, she, in turn, would pay for Manya's turn. And it was the only way to get them both through. Mm-hmm. It, it sounded, it was a real workable plan. Yeah. You know, Manya would take her time, she'd stop the, you know, the schooling thing, and be a governess to a family. Um, so she did. That's what they did. It, the first job only lasted about three months because the family found her arrogant. <laughs> I wrote, boy, howdy, did this suck, is what I wrote. So, arrogance seems better. And she said she found them demoralized by wealth. That's how she found the family. Uh, They made sure to humiliate her in front of their guests. Oh, new money. The class that she was from used to have the money. Yeah. They used to be aristocrats, and then they got all their land taken away. You can tell a lot about people by how they treat, I guess I have to say, servants, or Mm -hmm. in modern day waiters Mm -hmm. oh yeah you can tell a lot about someone like that's a marker Mm -hmm. of new money if they feel like they have to humiliate the waiter in front of you don't date them no red flag run so when a better paying job came along even though it was way out in the country and not in the pretty country it's kind of like beet farming country it was a beet farm yeah Yeah. i'm just saying it wasn't like beautiful butterfly country yeah although uh there's a documentary and i'll put a link on the show notes and you the woman goes there the one that owns it they go there and they show you the house that she lived in and and the land and i mean it's kind of pretty it's in winter so it looked really pretty but yeah 
farmland far away from everything. So off to the Zorovskis, already treated much better because they met her at the train station with furs to keep her warm and a hot drink. Ooh, that's a good sign already. No kidding. She was really hired to teach the 10-year-old girl of the house four hours a day. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what her, her job was. But she ended up becoming really good friends with the oldest daughter of the house. And together they started an, do I have to say it, illegal little uh, elementary school for village children. In Manya's room, see how, I mean... Just see how utterly important this is to just all walks of life. The village people could get in trouble for sending their little children here, but the village people thought it was worth doing. Right. Two, it's not just Manya and the upper classes like, oh, let me go and help the poor. Yeah. Everybody was down. Um, I mean, her boss knew about it and mm-hmm. everything. This yeah. isn't like... Well, it's her daughter's doing it, too. So they referred to her as that brilliant Miss Lidovska to everyone. Refreshing. <laughs> compared to, to the other job. Yeah. She was also that beautiful Miss Sklodowska, in case you're wondering. I know. She, um, I don't, you think of Marie Curie in the pictures you see. You know, she's older, but at this point, she's got dark blonde hair, gray eyes. She's about five feet tall. She's, I, I hate to use this word to describe someone that has a brain and an, and an intelligence and a contribution to society, but she was adorable. So, the oldest boy, Casimir, came Kazmier. home. Mm, came home from college that summer. The two of them fell in love. Well, he was smart and dashing, and, you know, here's this woman that's his age right in front of him. Oh, hello. Well, <laughs> they thought it was going to be smooth sailing, because after all, his parents freaking love her. Mm-hmm. They freaking love her. They had had her family to stay. Everybody made her presents, and, mm-hmm. you know. They treated her like a daughter. They talked her up everywhere, all over oh, the yeah. neighborhood, oh, yeah. you know. So kind of as a formality, I guess, he thought, Casimir told his parents he wanted to marry Manya, and the poo hit the fan. <laughs> they just did a total 180 on their personalities. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. That's marrying down. You need to either marry up or you can move out and we'll stop paying for your education. You need to marry into the nobility or at least money. People don't marry governesses. That is a funny joke, Casimir. Do not tell me another one. Yeah, it's just a summer fling. So the family pressure was just too much. He let it go. He let it go. And here's Manya trapped because, you know, you still have to send Bronny the money. And she's got a contract with the family for three years, and this was only a year in. I think she was... Saved from being let go because, really, if you think about it, there had been no confrontation between her or conversation even between her and the parents about this. I think they could treat it as if Casimir came in secret and farted uh-huh. <laughs> and they opened the window That's and right. let that go. <laughs> the end. We don't have to speak of this yeah. again. Well, Lani went into this classic for her depression spiral a little and her letters get filled with phrases like, my potential has been wasted. I pin all of my hopes on you and my brother, Branya. I'll, I'll never get to university. I despair about myself. Her books were old. There weren't enough of them. She was trying to learn chemistry out of a dang book, which I guess is like reading about cooking instead of cooking. cooking. <laughs> Out in Paris, her sister was getting married to a man that couldn't set foot back in Poland because he was on a list. Uh. Because he'd run afoul of the Russians. Mm-hmm. So Manya was going to have to be the one to go look after Papa, I guess. 
And I'm like, isn't there another sister? And in every letter, they're like, well, you know, hell is no good at taking care of anyone. It's like, she's legally blonde or something? Yeah, she was number two in the class, so we can't really I know, but they, they treat her like... <laughs> Did you find anything that talked about why she was... No. Why she was black-sheeped, kind of? I mean... What is the second place called? Salutatorian? Uh-huh. What's a girl gotta do? I guess be number one, or it, you're not gonna make it in this family. Well, anyway, Manya was all, you know, Depeche Mode gothing. I never have any luck. I, uh. So she went back for a year to live with her father, and the floating university people did give her a bit of luck. Hidden behind the facade of the Museum of Industry and Agriculture. If you're a Russian, you observe the sign, and the dog yawn comes. You know that yawn, you can't. Your mouth opens to the extent that it can. Like, <laughs> I don't even need to inspect that. That's right. Behind the scenes, though, of that museum was a real laboratory. <laughs> and she had a relative that worked there. So she was able to work with him, and he taught her how to use the chemistry lab, how to use the equipment, how to do experiments, how to do research in a lab. All things that up to this point were just... Um, theoretical to her, but she's actually getting hands-on. You know, I think when I was, like, reading this part, I'm like, she's, like, getting confidence in her in her career, in her occupation. She knows what she wants to do now. I mean, she's, she's in the lab, and that's her place. That whole emo thing falls away. Yep. Well, and I have to say, sometimes she would blow things up. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, she but would But you learn a lot when things you blow things up. That's true. You learn a lot. I mean, I garden... When I kill a plant, I learn a lot. I consider it, you know, money well spent because I know more about there that plant. You, you know, how sometimes somebody just picks up a guitar and just knows or takes up ballet and it's a passion. And so, you get high. When you mm-hmm. do something that you know you were meant to do, that everything in your life was meant to do this one thing, you get high from it. And that's what she's getting. Age 24, she has got her calling. Bronnie was ready. Finally, come to Paris. Okay, it's time. It's your turn. And... With Papa's blessing, Papa is not going to let some misguided sense of martyrdom, mm-hmm. nationalistic martyrdom, keep his daughter on duty. I mean, I'm not living with the repercussions of that. <laughs> no, thank yeah, you. It's like all those parents when their kids are seniors and they don't want you don't want them to go away to college, but you can't live with them anymore. You know you can't. And well, you're holding them back, so you got to let them go. It's time. So, with Papa's blessing, she got on a fourth-class train carriage, basically an uninsulated luggage van with benches around the outside, although people in the know said, do not sit on those benches unless you want rats to crawl on you, which you don't. So you bring your own stool and you sit in the middle. (laughs) Yeah, that's rough rough travel right there. I mean, she's obviously a committed person. She's going to begin a new life. Since she is starting this new life, this is probably a really good time for us to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what life in Paris is really like for her. And we're back. Manya, whose real name, remember, was Maria, registered at the Sorbonne as Marie Sklodowska, one of only 23 women students in the hmm, approximately 2,000 (gasps) students total in her college, which was called the Faculty of Sciences. Well, at first, Marie, as we'll call her from now on, try... Can we just say Manya one more time? Because I just love that name so much. I'm going to have to get a pet and name it Manya. Okay, do it. Or maybe I'll just name my new computer Manya. Done. (laughs) So Marie tried to stay with her sister and her husband, who is another Casimir. (laughs) Her brother-in-law was sort of a 
joyful pain in the honey, I must say. He's always at her, like, um, you know, like, come out, there's a concert. I invited all these people to come meet you. We're drinking tea upstairs. We're going on a picnic. Hey, what are you reading in here? It's a nice day. I'm like, leave me alone. Okay, as an extrovert, I can tell you what that is. It's an extrovert trying to live with an introvert and not realizing that's what they are. Well, he's friendly, but you can't get a thing done if he is in no. your face all the time. So she speaks French fluently, but she doesn't think she has the accent down right. So she wants to practice that. She wants to catch up on everything that she didn't get in her floating university that is coming up at the Sorbonne. She wants to study. I have to tell you, I feel a lot of solidarity with her because I have an only child and I have a spouse who is mostly at work. So my whole day goes like this. Let's jump on the trampoline. Look at my video. Will you take me to the skate park? Let's go Pokemon hunting. Marie, I know you hate to be the grump that is like, no, no, no. But like, you have to get some work done. That's right. That's why you're there. But your dream. But you're torn because like, oh, okay. I do love you. You're awesome. I want to please you, but you're exhausting me. (laughs) So we're removed. She moved to a cheap apartment, uh, six floors up, at the very tip top of an apartment building. And I have to say, the description of this apartment reminds me of the apartment in Ratatouille. Oh, yes. I didn't think of that. But now, yeah. she doesn't have a view of the brand new Eiffel Tower. Ratatouille is set in Montmartre. Mm-hmm. So you can get a little view. Yeah. Also, there were a lot more windows in that one than I think Marie had. But um, it's a tiny, 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 tiny apartment. Less than 200 square feet. Tiny bed, one table, one chair, one pot, one fork, one spoon. You had to fill a bucket down a couple flights on the landing out of a random faucet sticking out of the wall if you wanted any water at all. But she grew up sleeping in the dining room. I know. I, this is, she was so happy here. She was able to like focus on her studies. The, her classes were not that far away. She was very close. She was so happy in her little garret. <laughs> there is, um, I think I saw it in apartment therapy. I'll have to find it. They rent these apartments still. They're called Chambre de Bon. It's like maid houses for the apartments down below. Oh, uh-huh. It's kind of what their original purpose was. They are so small, but Paris is so expensive that right. people are moving in there. And it's just a marvel of space efficiency. It's like, actually very like well done. those tiny houses. It's a tiny house, but in a building. And the toilet is still down the hall. In a very old building. (laughs) Yeah. So she lived on bread and butter and tea, mostly. If things were in season, i.e. cheap, she might get cherries, um, fruit, radishes. How do radish farmers ever make a living, even now? Aren't they like 37 cents a bundle? How many radishes do you have to pull out of the ground to make a dollar? I got nothing. I I don't don't even know. know. And she had never learned to cook. So this little, you know, grab this and that and the other thing, it worked for her until she collapsed because she hadn't had enough to eat. So she'd go and stay at Branya's house and Branya would fatten her up with steak and potatoes and send her back to her garret. Well, she could learn all day. So off with her overalls, you know, his big coverall that you wore in the lab all day, and then back home to read and study until the sun went down, and then she would decamp off to the library so she wouldn't have to spend money on lamp oil. And then when the library closed, she'd come back, unwillingly light that lamp up till two in the morning. And then finally go to sleep. So she's living on no sleep, maybe an egg a week. Splurge, you have a square of chocolate. Mm -hmm. I mean, and nothing else. But, you know, the light was burning in her head. (laughs) She was so grateful for the opportunity. Um, Really, she kept to herself. She made very few friends. And it might seem lonely to you and me. Actually, maybe just to you. Because I get it. But Murray thrived on it. She, She fainted from lack of food. 
and once was so cold in her unheated room that she slept in all her clothes that she owned out of the drawers too and the table on top of her and the chair on top of her because there's nothing else to move to put on your towel but what do physical hardships matter when there is such knowledge to be had that's a theme for the rest of her life the world of science opened up to me she said which i was at last permitted to know in all of its glory just when someone has been starved for opportunity mm-hmm. who cares about your stomach growling exactly yeah yeah at 26 marie received the equivalent of a master's degree in physics the first in her class and one of only two women total mm-hmm. a friend in poland kind of I have to say, bullied the authorities. I don't know if she, what she had on somebody, but I don't know. But she bullied them into giving Maria a scholarship to return for another degree the next year. Like, one's not enough. We gotta go back. Let her go. So she got also a paid gig to study... Oh, this seems dry to me. Dry. Oh. She's <laughs> studying the magnetic properties of steel and other metals. It was kind of like a work-study job. Yeah, just enough. Just yeah. enough to let her go back to school. So here is the frustrating thing, though. The experiments she needed to do for the paid gig required space and lots of materials and big equipment. So what was a scientist on a budget to do? Uh-huh. I know a guy, said a science friend of hers. Well, here's the thing. You know what? In any city, any industry, you know the people in the industry. Even yeah. if you're in competition, yeah. the science industry in Paris was like that. So you could be connected to a lot of different people. By just telling one. Yeah. So, and they knew each other. They all knew each other. Well, and this guy, the guy, her friend knew was actually, although France didn't seem to appreciate him, a famous scientist. One of his discoveries about how to measure small, very small units of electricity, super theoretical, because who needed to measure small units of electricity? (laughs) Nobody. So this machine, while fabulous, wasn't so practical (laughs) but it was used by researchers all over the world now starting Mm -hmm. to be like oh we're starting to get it just now and he's the guy that had made it and his work on crystal symmetry i mean (laughs) so if you've ever seen your baby on an ultrasound Mm -hmm. you have pierre curie to thank if you've ever had a quartz watch uh an electric igniter like on your furnace uh he's touched you in some way. I have to tell you, all dotted through my notes, I have, Beckett could probably explain this science better than I can. <laughs> I feel nervous about the science, actually. I like, feel like like when I see a violin player on a movie, mm-hmm. and I'm always like, can you not get a fourth grader to show you how to do the bow? So please, scientists, just know, I make no pretensions to play this violin. <laughs> I don't even know what the violin is. Yeah. So talk about... Magnetic experiments. Pierre was sitting in a bow window when Marie came in, and oh my. Magnetism. For both of them, kind of an initial physical attraction, a little spark. I assure you, both of them were super inexperienced romantically. Oh, yeah. They each had the one great love, (laughs) theoretically. And they both had given up on romance. They're like, that it doesn't have a place in my life. It's like, Sheldon Cooper, meet. Amy Farrah Fowler. And is that Big Bang Theory? Yeah. Are you so proud of me? I am. That I even... There's an attraction, but they're not, uh, well, I don't know, should we work on it? I don't know. But here's the thing. He had sworn off women, and he was kind of a little, you know, it's, he's a man, you know. And he's thinking women aren't going to be able to, he's not going to find a woman that can understand him. But she starts talking to him in his language. You know, I'm not talking French. I'm talking science. They're, be, they're able to communicate 
in a way that no other people would be able to. Plus, she's really adorable. I have a picture here of, okay, the friend that I knew a guy friend. This mm-hmm. is his house. Yeah. I totally think as those two scientists sitting in the bow window start nerding out and exchanging ideas <laughs> as if other people might exchange kisses. Yeah. I can see that guy looking at his wife, nodding and clinking a glass because Pierre did not have a lab. Was this matchmaking? <laughs> like, oh, do I have the girl for this guy? I don't know. I Yeah, I wondered the same thing because you would have thought he would have known if the lab situation that Pierre didn't have. Well, this friend that had set them up, however, accidentally or on purpose, um, said they are honest and simple, both of them, and that is why this worked so well. Mm-hmm. So a bit, a tiny bit, this is like a tiny background on Mr. Curie, Pierre. He was one of the two sons of a doctor and his wife, I have to say, kind of unconventional upbringing. The French school system is pretty harsh, pretty regimented. You will sit, madame, or monsieur will parl, you know, at you, and you will shut your face mm. in the end. There's no of this getting up, walking around. There's none of this, you know, experimenting. No, I tell you what goes in your head, you write it down, the end. His parents were like, that is not going to work. For him, he needs to move around, he needs to work with his hands, and so they also taught him at home, Papa did, mm-hmm. He was allowed to experiment and learn at his own pace. He entered the Sorbonne at 16. Oh, he graduated at 18. He's like Spencer Reed from Criminal Minds. He's just absorbing all this information super fast, and you don't know Criminal Minds either, do you? No. All right. I'm not the TV watcher of the group. (laughs) I'm still proud of myself. It's super violent. Oh, well. Yeah. Sign me up. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, this guy is seriously handsome. I, you know. Mm -hmm. Look at the photo. He was dreamy. I... I thought. He'd been badly burned Mm -hmm. by love Mm -hmm. one time, and that was it. And so this was a great surprise, and they began to see quite a lot of each other. He called in at the lab that she had finally found to work in, um, in her glorious, wrinkled-up old work outfits, so it must have been love. So he called into her apartment. What? (gasps) Where she lives alone. That's scandalous. But it's in the Latin Quarter, so men visit women's apartments all the time. Well, and I was going to say, at 26 (laughs) and 35, you might get a pass. Yeah, maybe. Uh, All she said was they drank tea and talked the night away, and as they say, is that what the kids are calling it these days? (laughs) I'm just kidding. They likely talked all night, because that's how they are. (laughs) With paper and, like, scribbling notes and diagrams and, yeah. Within the year, Marie got a second degree in mathematics, and, you know... It is now officially time to go home and work for a better Poland. She yeah. had said she meant that all along. That was her goal. Right. Um, and Pierre asked her to marry him. Uh, but she was torn. She couldn't abandon Poland. Could she? I mean, so really, it was a big problem for her. Actually, his mother told Branya, there isn't a soul on earth equal to my Pierre. Don't let your sister hesitate. It's like, he's a catch. She needs to catch him. Well, she did go back to Poland without making any promises. And this is how historians have the letters. The letters he wrote to her to persuade her to come back. And she, in her autobiography, said that this was a very persuasive sentence. He said, It would be a fine thing, in which I hardly dare to believe, to pass our lives near each other, hypnotized by our dreams, your patriotic one, our humanitarian one, and our scientific one. Swoon. 
I guess that's the language of romance <laughs> to a scientist. It took almost a year and honestly a kind but blunt letter echoing a lot of what her father had said years ago that said, you know, it's better if you're a scientist in France than a martyred and bitter school teacher here in Poland, Marie. If you're going to feel broken by the sacrifice of your whole life coming back, by all means, stay in France. <laughs> I mean, he, I'm paraphrasing. He said yeah, it much yeah. more diplomatically, but everyone's like, you don't have to kill yourself on the altar of Poland. Right. Just do what you can from there. It's fine. Right. It's fine. <laughs> Worlds will keep turning. Yeah, so that's right. But at last, at last, on July 26th, 1895, at a wedding in the courthouse, as both of them were atheists, Marie Sklodowska became Madame Pierre Curie, wearing a practical navy blue suit that would be useful for later. Even though Pierre's mother offered to buy her a fine wedding dress from a boutique, she's like, mm, I could just wear this one. That particular scenario was dotted throughout her life. The women around her were like, let's get you a pretty dress for this. And she's like, no, I need a new dress, but it has to be functional in the lab. Later. Yeah. And speaking of functionality, for their honeymoon, they went on a bike tour of the countryside of France. And there's this picture of the two of them. And she actually looks like, you know, girlified. She's got the hat with the flowers. She's wearing these jodhpurs that are like pants split so she could ride the bike. Function. Then she has those giant leg of mutton sleeves. So somebody <laughs> fashionable must have got a hold of her. There was flowers on her handlebars. It's pretty cute. No reservations. Um, no real plans. You know, let's go tromp around in the wet grass or up a mountain. And whenever we get tired, we'll rest. You know, whenever we're hungry, we'll eat. And we'll discuss science the whole time. For every sock, there is a shoe, is okay. what I have to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of socks and shoes, did what did they do? Did they keep that? Because well, I only saw the one picture and there's no, like, saddlebags on the bikes. So did they have luggage? Did they send it ahead? How do, I, I, I'm sorry. I wish I had the answer to this. I don't know. They're biking all day in these heavy clothes. They're going to stink to high heaven. I don't know the answer to that. I'm sure there was some kind of haversack. Yeah, but how much can you fit? You know, every movie, I've always wondered this. People show up and they have the tiny handbag suitcase. Uh-huh. So evidently they either have the one dress and the suitcase merely has undergarments in it, mm-hmm. which is probably what it is. And you can crumple those up into the little suitcase. Right. Or they have trunks sent ahead somewhere. I mean, Nellie Bly did it with the one handbag. She ever was considered a wacko even then. Like, you're just going to go with this one little bag? Okay. (laughs) Practical question, unanswerable. Married life started up again. This time at... uh, Why did I write that? I have her addresses. I always write down her addresses if I have them. Maybe so I can Google Street View them. Oh. Anyway, um, you don't have to know what it is. I'll put it on the website, I guess. (laughs) But Pierre got a doctorate. And an increased salary. And Marie was working on her magnetism, you know, experiments, and also a teaching certificate so she'd have the opportunity to earn some money that way. All of the housework fell to her, of course, and all the cooking. You know, fair enough, you can swim over here in a man's world at the lab, but don't expect your husband to hop into women's work and all of that. Oh, no, no. They they did have a woman that came in occasionally and helped her. But for the most part, she was it. They called it doing the rough. Like, somebody mucked them out, washed everything, <laughs> turned everything. But, like, day to day, here's, you know, this is so characteristic of her. She spent some time, days worth of experiments, calculating the exact 
height of the flame on the stove that would cook X amount of liquid in X amount of time so she could set dinner in the morning before she left my kingdom for a crock pot, Marie. I know, right? And so she could, you know, do that before she left and she'd set it exactly at the right height, measure it, uh-huh. and then take off. So realize she had to learn how to cook, too. Because she hadn't been cooking. Yeah, yeah. She's a French mother-in-law, so that's pressure. Yeah, she gave her lessons. I don't don't know. know. Well, she had no rug, no knickknacks. No one has time for that. No minimalist. Yeah, but who cares? You know, they didn't care. They loved to work together, and Pierre once said that they were the happiest in the world when they were apart from all other human beings. And so it was, until at 30, Marie and Pierre had a baby. Did Pierre's father, because he was a doctor, caught... Uh, that mm, I cannot get over that. I love my father-in-law. I yeah. I don't necessarily need to present him with that viewpoint. No, I shall we say I agree. But you know, she's practical. He's a doctor. He's in the family. This is science. It's it's nature doing its thing. Marie clenched her teeth. She didn't even scream out, according to reports, um, and gave birth to a six-pound girl. Irene. Here we go again. It's the mother's sole responsibility because it's a baby, right? And Maria tried to keep up the pace. And she was getting paid for the steel experiments after all. She would breastfeed as long as she could and then had to hire not only a wet nurse, which just to be able to have a few hours of work together in a line, she had to hire a nanny also. And I'm very sorry to say that she felt like a complete failure because of it. I'm very sorry to say that no one is immune from that. No. Pierre felt no such tension. Not at all. Now, well, she's also, again, she's kind of spiraling into another one of those situational depressions during this time. So she's trying to learn everything there is to know, learn about the baby and keep the house going. It's it's a lot. Well, and she would get these feelings of dread. She'd be at work, and then all of a sudden she'd just drop everything and rush home just you know, just sure the nanny had lost the baby, who of course was fine. Nannies don't it's a panic attack. Lose the baby typically. She was very distracted, and she felt like <laughs> this sounds so familiar. She felt like she wasn't giving good attention to any part of her life, which I'm sure all working mothers can relate to. Mm-hmm. Doctors were not familiar with the stresses of work-life balance. Why would they be? Because there's you know such a small percentage of women what? in the upper end middle classes who were working. I will say, poor women all the time. You have to keep saying. It's a privileged class of women who had the have still the opportunity to complain about work-life balance, but whatever. So they recommended that she be sent to a sanatorium. And you know, up until this minute, I always thought that word was related to sanitary, but a sanatorium for sanity? Or is it sanitary? I always thought sanity. And I always thought... Clean. Weird. Okay, well... Oh. There's something. There's a brain cell that's recently been activated. <laughs> well, all she needed, all many she's need, if you're asking, is some freaking help. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so Pierre's father, Grandpa Kiri, we'll call him, has recently lost his wife. They had been a pretty close family growing up, and Grandpa offered to live with them and kind of be the family CEO. I guess <laughs> he's not going to wash dishes or anything, I don't think. I don't know. You never know what people do and behind closed doors. And they were a little unconventional as a family. It, they're kind of tra- trailblazing for themselves. They're making things work the way they're going to work for that family. But then he wouldn't be alone. He wouldn't be lonesome. It was a win-win, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Uh, and so they moved to a little bigger house, and the domestic pressure was off Marie. So all of this, all this we've been talking about for the last 
what, 45 minutes, an hour, seems like a prelude to the real story, sort of, doesn't it? The thing you know about Marie Curie hasn't even reared its head yet, has it? Nope. Has not. The trail has been blazed, and the tools have been gotten. Yeah, so I wrote, (laughs) do we ever get to all the science? Okay, here we go. And I put, let Beckett explain the science of (laughs) (laughs) x-rays. Okay, here we go. So it was time for Marie to get a doctorate. But to do that, you had to come up with some kind of discovery or a novel way of doing something. And so she's reading all these scientific texts and papers for inspiration, and two bodies of work kind of stuck out to her as something she might follow up on. Professor Wilhelm Röntgen had discovered a new type of ray, or more accurately for the scientists among you, produced, then detected the rays. <laughs> I understand that's very critical difference, okay. discovered important. or not. Important. Scientists don't write me. I'll I'll give you a link to a clearer description of the process, if that's your thing. You have to look at the first actual x-ray photo taken of a person. It's Mrs. Röntgen's hand with its ring. Super creepy picture, which made her shriek and say that she had just seen a shadow of her own death. Well, she got 1,500 times the radiation that you and I would get today, so... Yes, you had, but not in the way that you think. (laughs) Anyway, I would love that image on a shirt. Making note to Google that later. It might be. It's pretty cool. So x-rays. They got into the public consciousness. We're going to look at our feet and our shoes. Oh, we can find where bullets are in a wound. We can look through the walls like big perfs. I mean, (laughs) x-rays were super science fiction-y. And the photo was epic. And the photo is critical. Let's just say x-rays equal, oh my god, that's a stuff. So another scientist, Henry Becquerel, followed up on this work, and he hypothesized x-rays were somehow related to phosphorescence, where you basically expose something to one kind of light, and it gives off a different kind of light, like glow-in-the-dark star stickers. I knew you'd have a a good explanation. So he wanted to see if he could make x-rays without the electricity, because x-rays required something to be triggered with, with electricity. So uranium he thought he'd work with because it was phosphorescent. And he thought at first you had to expose it to the light to get it to release this energy he was trying to measure. So he has, you know, chunks of uranium on the windowsill. Um, And ultimately it came to him that there was something about the uranium itself that was releasing measurable energy, not x-rays. Huh. Some other kind of ray. Radioactivity. Though he didn't call it that and he didn't know it was radioactivity That's right. It's something. But there's no cool photo of someone's hand with these kind of rays. Mm. There's just fuzzy sort of random shapes. There's no jazz. There's no super fun visual aids like x-rays had. And research into these Becquerel rays just kind of tapered off. Well, yeah, and he had problems with it because the tools were too fine for him to work with. Every time he tried to measure something with the electrometer, he couldn't. He, he just couldn't get it to work. So it was too frustrating. There wasn't any support, and it was kind of petered out. Yeah. So Marie was inspired by Becquerel's work, and she thought, uh, now here, here is a subject with some open space for me. Where was the energy coming from, and how? So she thought, I am going to explain Becquerel's rays. That's my doctorate thesis right there. She got a hold of his face, kind of a horrible space aesthetically you know that makes no difference to her kind of this big abandoned machine shed with a whole bunch of wrecked up machinery and furniture in it unheated 
except for a little stove she brought in that mostly just made an orange light to look at because honestly <laughs> you couldn't heat the place there's too many holes no yeah. holes in the roof yeah <laughs> but you know marie doesn't care so no. drag some tables over and level them up i don't care so at first she wasn't quite sure where she, you know where am i going to go with this so let's just get a whole bunch of samples of different material she said she's going to test every material okay she tested a lot of them yes yeah, she did but uh, she's going to see if they have the properties that she's looking for. You know, narrow down the focus. Let's see what gives off the rays first. That's step one. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? Like, I don't know. Well, x-rays and Becquerel rays both make the air conduct electricity. And hey, didn't my own husband invent a machine that could measure small amounts of electricity? It's as if the fates <laughs> put them together. I'm serious. It's freaking me out. Oh, and she could make it work. Because he trained her. I understand, but it required yeah. some a physical uh, ability. And yep. That thing that she did as a kid, it blocked things out and be able to hold the pose and study, mm-hmm. that's what she needed. Well, her tool is called a piezoelectric quartz electrometer. And honestly, Pierre was so happy that she was using his thing. <laughs> he could help her get her doctorate. And he tinkered and he worked on it for her and tailored it to the way that she worked. And it was fate. And long story short, there is a mineral called pitchblende that was about four times more radioactive. That's Marie's term, by the way. Radioactivity. That song kept going in my head. Radioactive. What's that? Imagine Dragons? Yeah, it's a new one. Well, it's more radioactive than it should have been, all other things being equal. And they... Pierre and Marie discovered a new element, which Marie named polonium after her homeland in July of 1898. So imagine the periodic table that we have now. There was a hole in it, and now there's polonium. Polonium is used for heat in space travel. That's pretty much not anything else except for there was a Russian spy that was assassinated with polonium. Litvinenko. Really? How? Did they make it into a bullet? Oh, I think they put it in his tea. Oh. Anyway, it's a brand new element, number 84, on the charts. So after a long vacation, because the Curies were feeling sort of run down and sort of sick, they needed the fresh air, they thought, or maybe to be exposed to less radiation, you think, but nobody knew that yet. No. Back to the lab. They followed their measurements to yet another new element, radium. The Curies named it 900 times more radioactive than uranium. I'm so sorry. That song, speaking of songs, that song, Meet the Elements, is going through my head by, oh my gosh, you don't know it. They might be giants. They have got a whole album called This Might Be Sun. Okay. Combine to form a chemical compound or stand alone as they are. Come on and meet my friends, the elements. No? Okay. Nothing. They also have another one called I Am a Paleontologist. That one I think I've heard. Okay, now you've definitely heard this one. This is the most popular thing. Okay. The sun is a mass of incandescent gas, a gigantic nuclear <laughs> furnace where hydrogen is made into helium at a temperature of millions of degrees. Yes? What? Do I have that written down? I do not. Also, I no, didn't. You do not. I did not sing that very well. Sorry, they might be giants. We'll have to give you a link to the real one. <laughs> But they had found these elements sort of mathematically. You know, where were the specimens? The isolated chunks of polonium and radium. They were needed as proof, kind of as part of the part of the package. It hadn't been seen or weighed. Physicists were fine with this level of proof, might I say. Chemists were not fine with this level of proof. I don't know what this says about physicists and chemists. Chemists work with stuff. Physicists work with properties paper. of stuff. 
know. So they've discovered the two elements. That's not epic enough. Evidently, on to the groundbreaking assertion of Marie Curie's that radioactivity probably comes from within the element itself. Uh, it's not any outside force. The atoms are not just little Lego building blocks put together in different ways, but maybe more like little machines, mm-hmm. which freaking blew everyone's mind. Like, it really destroyed a lot of theory. Like but saying, scientists love that. And I, she didn't get this far, but she opened up the research into, because her theory was, and she hadn't tested it, the theory is it's a property inside the atom, which really went against hundreds of years of, of science, thinking it was just little balls, mm-hmm. you know, little little building blocks. Anyway, polonium was very squirrely to get a hold of. Later, scientists discovered that it decayed so quickly, it was like just over 100 days. It's like kind of too fast for Marie and Pierre to get a hold of it right. Um, right then. They never managed to isolate that one, but radium was another matter. But to get the radium was a long-term project. It wasn't like just chunk up this rock and find it. Yeah, the bad news is pitch blend is 99.99999% not radium. <laughs> I hope that's enough nine. We're going to need a bigger boat. You know. know, We're going to need a bigger old shop is what it is. And they had to get, this one used to be where med students used to dissect their cadavers during anatomy class. So at least it had a scientific history. That's true. Also unheated, also holes in the roof. If you're going to be precision scientists, this is not ideal. So the patience required for this process is really epic. So they had to get tons and tons and tons of this pitch blend from an industrial place that just wanted the uranium out and sort of couldn't believe their luck when someone came calling and wanted to basically take their trash. Win, win! You pay to take it away. Here you go. Well, I don't know what you want it for. That's right. Um, so what did they need the uranium for, you might ask, since they didn't have atomic weapons or power plants or anything. Here's what they needed it for, uranium glass. Some of you might collect it. It's also known as Vaseline glass. It glows green in black light. Super cool! But they've been doing that since the Roman times. It's not new. People didn't know that it was radioactive. It just was so super cool. It made a nice yellow color in regular light. Even old Fiesta wear, by the way, has uranium in the glaze, especially the old, the red-orange. Really? And the ivory color. The old oh. Fiesta wear has uranium. Wow. Not enough, well, I, don't, I don't think, to be killing you. But then again, the Elizabethans ate off pewter and lead, and that didn't do so well for them. So you don't eat off red and ivory Fiesta wear if it's old. Old. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. A little public service announcement for me to you. So, at first, they did all the work themselves because they had to. Something like seven processes, some of which had to be done multiple times. So, you're looking at ten different things you have to do to each pound of dust. Different chemicals took out or added different things Mm -hmm. so you could get to the end result. Well, eventually, they had to outsource the first few steps. Because the mechanical stuff dudes with overalls could do. Please, let's just get, like, the middle steps. Mm -hmm. We need an actual scientist. (laughs) Because this is killing us with this carrying around of all this dirt. A lot of people came to volunteer. Because, you know, like you said, scientific community, just like the restaurant community, you know, a guy. Mm -hmm. Hey, oh my gosh, I need someone to cover this shift. Yeah. Your friend, the scientist, comes in and helps. One of those scientists actually discovered another element on their premises called actinium. Can you believe that? That's exciting. It's when it's exciting. I mean, if that's your thing, that's well, exciting. Well, yeah. I mean, they're, they're filling in the periodic table. That's come on, cool. come on, and meet the elements. Sam, let's sing it again. <laughs> All the pictures you see are of Marie serenely holding up a test tube. But here's what they don't show you: the small child who wanted her May all the time. The dinners to be made of radioactive ingredients. I assume as 
radioactivity clings to you yeah. and goes where you go. Uh, Marie made her and Irene's clothes. Both Pierre and Marie had to teach just to get by financially. Yeah, financially they needed they needed income. I'm not, this is not a free project. So he was teaching at the Sorbonne in the School of Science, and Marie actually got a job teaching at a boarding school for teen girls. The objective of the school was to teach female teachers, but Marie was the first female teacher they'd had. Kind of meta. Yeah, yeah, kind of. And she, but they loved her. Her students loved her because she explained things. She showed them. It wasn't all theory. You know, it was practical. She brought in equipment. Yeah. Tools. Show and tell. How cool is that? And, you know, we talked about the French educational system being sit in your seat, Madame will speak, the end. There's none of this interaction. And she doesn't know from that. You no, know, she's so not she... speaking. She's asking questions. Yeah. That she knows the answer to. But, you know, what's going to happen if I do this? But what we should take from all this is that the radium had to fit into the cracks of their lives, like podcasting. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, also, Irene hated the lab. She called it that sad place. Ironic, given her future career. We'll talk about that in part yeah. two. And she wondered why her mother wasn't home, like everyone else's mother. I mean, like, ah, the guilt. I swear to you, you just don't know. You just don't know. At one point, Pierre was even so tired. Like, can we just, can we just go back to theories and measurements and properties you're you're killing yourself with this she was but not the way he meant <laughs> but marie was determined she was going to see this thing she was going to see it and one day they had it four years after its discovery almost it's 19 it's march 28th 1902 and marie makes an entry into her lab journal ra equals 225.93 the weight of an atom of radium yeah, it was one decigram of radium. So a tenth of, say, a medium paperclip weight. At last, a measurable, undeniable, pure sample of radium, glowing pale blue in the dark lab. I mean, that's like they had a choir of angels in the background. It would be, that's the visual equivalent of it. It's glowing. And now, with that triumph... It's time to take a little break. And when we come back, we will see where radium takes the curies. And we're back. So radium, that glowing blue angel in the darkness, caught the imagination of the public. I can't even think of a modern equivalent. It glowed. It was magically able to send invisible rays out from itself. It made other elements out of its own self. Like that's where helium came from. Alchemy. Alchemy. <laughs> Just the romance of the whole thing. I know. Like, um... And scientists could not stop bombarding the Curies with requests for lessons, advice, a piece of radium, a, a signature, an autograph. <laughs> Doctors had seized on its power to burn away damaged skin or tissues and wanted to experiment with it as a possible cure for cancer. There's a humanitarian goal for you, Curies. A letter came from America and plans were afoot to produce radium on an industrial scale. So can we use your methods, please? That's cheek. That's chutzpah. <laughs> and the Curies were writing papers that were getting published in scientific journals all along. That's how the science community works. So I, maybe they could have plugged it together, but I guess, yeah, to ask them, hey, can I have that? Thanks. Pierre and Marie had to have a serious conversation about this. You know, do we take out a patent on this? No one can deny their right to claim it as a discovery, right? right? I mean... 
Mm-hmm. It means security. It would mean a giant lab if that's what they wanted. Super bicycles, if that <laughs> anything they wanted, you know. You know what? I, I'm just going to plug this in. The one thing that they did all the time is they had fresh flowers in the house, mm-hmm. so they could buy more flowers. They decided together that it was against the spirit of science to keep it for themselves, and they basically decided to publish the details of their research, basically open source their methodology. They, uh, so that was super generous of them. They could have been set for life. It was fitting with their, with their mission in life is to use science to improve humanity. Although <laughs> putting radium in products consumed by individuals may not be the best thing to do. But they didn't know that at the time because they were still doing research on it. So a rocky time. Papa, her papa, had died during this period. Marie had suffered a miscarriage. But Marie Curie did get her doctorate. She was a doctor of physical sciences with distinction, the first woman in France to do so. Awards and invitations were coming in from all sides, from countries all over the world. In fact, she got a very prestigious medal from England, didn't know what to do with it, and they gave it to Irene to play with. (laughs) This is how much they're valuing these things. Um, If hmm. there was a check with it, they would have appreciated that, and they would have put that in the right place, but... Well, America, other countries were offering to set up whole lecture series and, you know, name your price for this. We're so excited to have you. And they're like, no way, no thank you, not interested. That must be so frustrating if you're a guy trying to set up a lecture series and all you're like, "Mm, no. The one guy, the one get. You're the producer and you can't get the one get. (laughs) Of course he's going to. Why wouldn't he want to come? Then a letter came from one of the members of the Swedish Academy of Science. That's the Nobel Committee on the DL. He said basically, hey, shh. Hey, Pierre, Mr. Curie, the Nobel Prize Committee wants to award you and Becquerel the Nobel Prize in Physics. You, I mean Pierre. Somebody's missing from this equation. The committee's wording was so suspect. These two men worked together and separately to procure with great difficulty this precious material. Their informant was a mathematician who was not down with this. He wanted Pierre to be alerted. Even though the whole world knew about Marie Curie and her involvement, the whole world knew. Were they going to treat her as if she were his assistant? They were planning to. Well, they also had gotten a letter from some people in the in the French scientific community saying that Pierre had done the work, leaving her out completely. The man who was her doctoral advisor was one of the, I say, kind of traitors. Mm-hmm. They were going to treat her like a nothing. And so... That's why this man wrote to them, because I got to tell you ahead of time, and Pierre's like, well, of course I'll turn it down. Right. If her name's not on it. Okay, now I have a weapon, because how embarrassing would that be? Because they can't nominate Becquerel without you. Mm-hmm. Right. And if Marie's not there, they can't have you, and they can't have, okay, I can work this out. Becquerel, by the way, in case you've forgotten from part two, is the, the new Ray man, the after X-ray man. So characteristically, after Marie's name was on there, begrudgingly, whatever. (laughs) I think she had some fans on the inside that Uh, found a loophole to get her in. Yes. So they were invited to King Oscar's reception and they turned it down, which makes me laugh so much. But I will tell you, the announcement was a little suspect, I think. Get the wording of the announcement at the reception to which neither of them were there. The great success of Professor and Madame Curie, stop right there. She is a doctor also. Right. But she's madame. Makes us look at God's word in a new light. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helpmeet for him. Gross. Oh my gosh. So they're still, even in the award speech, trying to make her nothing but his assistant. 
So anyway, Marie Curie was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize, however grudgingly given. <laughs> but she had it. The 1903 prize, the one we just talked about, was for physics, for radioactivity, for the rays, for the properties, not radium or polonium. No mention of it. There were still doubters among the chemists that these elements even existed. I don't know what it's going to take. There might have been doubters among the chemists, but the press loved it. It was They were swarmed. If, if they had this image of themselves... You know, going back quietly to their work, it it's gone. That life is over. They are superstars in, in the city. Well, it's a very romantic story. A beautiful poor girl, the struggle against oppression, Prince Charming working in the night, finding stardust in the rock. Come on. That's a story for you. That's like star-crossed lovers from District 12. The public, who doesn't know anything about radium, no, loves not. this story. There's a lot of good fairy tale elements in it. Uh, there was a caricature in Vanity Fair, the British Vanity Fair magazine, of the two of them together. And he is in the front holding this glowing vial, and she's behind him. Like, oh dear, that's lovely, the thing that you created. That's the f- image that the press is spreading around. Well, Marie spent the prize money, of which there was a lot, on presents, scholarships for poor students, a giant cash gift to the sanatorium that her sister and brother-in-law, Casimir, I love him, <laughs> they're both doctors, they set up a sanatorium, you know, big donation to that, and a brand new bathroom for herself. So practical. I love that. <laughs> and more employees, even more practical. You know what? Me too. More employees. Yeah. Let's have those. So speaking of that, France, after all this attention to these two scientists, who were, after all, French, looking around, they're not in very good positions, academically, socially, in the hierarchy of... And it's kind of embarrassing. Like, yeah. ooh, wait, we haven't given them... Our anything. national heroes are just putting in a bathroom? And he's a just a teacher? So Pierre, not Marie, was named to a new chair, a new professorship, shall we say, in science at the Sorbonne. Eventually with a laboratory. He played some hardball. Yeah. Because they weren't going to give him no. a laboratory. And he's like, then I don't need you. Give me back my <laughs> cadaver factory or whatever. I have chairs. In. I don't need a new one. <laughs> so a real laboratory. Just imagine what they could do in an actual laboratory. And um, so they gave him this professorship and hey, Madame Curie could officially work there as your assistant. Huh. I mean, they paid her a salary, but... Yeah, the money was good. The Academy of Sciences in France had rejected Pierre's application in the past, but suddenly he's accepted. Yes, you're totally mean to the nerds in high school until they make up Facebook or whatever, and all of a sudden you still want to be friends. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh ho, you kind of missed out. You should have been my friend all along. (laughs) The attention was really getting to both of them. There's a quote from Pierre that said, our lives are being spoiled with honor and glory, and they meant it. I mean, both of them are serious introverts. Not shy, but just people just exhaust her. Like, and they are in her face. What color's the little cat that's on the roof? Does Irene talk? What's her, what does she call you? Oh my gosh, do we want to talk about radium? That's right. Like, <laughs> these amazing scientific discoveries that I did. That I, there's a reason I'm standing in the spotlight right now. You really want to talk to me about parenting? Which oh. isn't light, but still, it's not her thing. So, oh, Marie, if you think journalists exhaust you, just you wait. In 1904, the Curie's second daughter, Eve, was born, and she is one of those babies who want to be up, 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 and it's easier to just carry them around. I had one of those. They get really good at holding on to the back of your shirt. (laughs) I thought it was interesting. She was born almost to the day, a year after the Nobel Prize was given to them. The Nobel Prize is always given on December 10th because it's the anniversary of Alfred Nobel's death. What do you know? I know. Radium was taking over commercially in all kinds of products 
though, not cancer treatment. Like, that's the first thing you think, radiation, cancer treatment. They were working on it, but it wasn't until about the 30s that radiation for cancer treatment really became kind of mainstream. So, not that, not yet. But in products, I have to say quack products. Oh my goodness. There's a radium toothpaste to make your teeth glow, which reminded me of that episode of Friends where Ross gets his teeth whitened and all you can see on the screen is like his teeth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Skin cream, radium water. No, no, people, do not ingest the radium. Socialites used to bring it out at parties out of their freaking handbags or vest pockets. Come on. And it's glowing. Anything that you would want to have a glow, they put it in. Like fabrics, you would like a glowing dress. That would be awesome. Let's cover you in radium. My, the, the favorite one I had was there was a bag of radium that you would the man would place near his scrotum to increase his uh, virility and bring back vitality. Yikes. Well, people, I just don't know. Just because it tingles doesn't mean it's good for you. So Pierre had suffered quite a few burn injuries. And they healed in a longer period of time than regular burns. And then when they healed, they were like kind of gray, dead skin. Mm -hmm. Red flag, red flag. So they knew something was going on. They did not have any idea how serious it was. But And Marie got burned through a wooden box once. Mm -hmm. The little tiny bit of radium was inside a wooden box. And she got seriously burnt just through the stuff. So you cannot tell people anything, though. No. It's shiny. I mean, it's they, awesome. The Curies had scars from their research all over their bodies, but nobody's looking at that. They're just like, let's make it glow. You know what? I could go back in time with a hundred blue glow sticks from U.S. Toy Company and make a Kelly. <laughs> How much would that cost me? $25? Tops. Maybe. Yeah. As long as they were blue, I could be like, hey, yo, socialite at the party, and I would be as safe as kittens, and I could charge $300 a piece for them. And they were in a blue, they were in a plastic vial, because plastic really hadn't been invented yet, so I would, uh, you would be the like a sorceress or something. I would get right into the VIP room, no matter what. I'd yeah. just hold up, how you like me now? I'm in. <laughs> Adding it to the list, by the way, we need to keep a time travel list of things to take back. Oh, yeah. Okay. Antibiotics, number one, yeah. obviously. Taser for Henry VIII. Tampons. Tampons. Yeah. Okay. We'll keep the list. <laughs> Our time travel machine is going to be well stocked. <laughs> With tampons and glow sticks. That's right. <laughs> it's a great party. So the Curies were doing well enough. Well enough, I guess. Financially, Mr. Curie gave the required Nobel Prize lecture years later. Uh, I might have been his choice. I don't know if they disinvited Marie or if she just let him take it because it wasn't her thing. It really isn't her thing, at least not yet. Um, But anyway, he took the opportunity from his bully pulpit to give her, her, her most of the credit in his speech, for which I like him very much. I liked him all along. I thought they were such a great pair. Now, he did mention that radioactivity might end up very dangerous in criminal hands. Criminals who are, for example, leading the people toward war. Prophetic statement. Yes. Both Curies were feeling pretty bad. Overwork, they thought. Radiation poisoning, we can see. Mm -hmm. I do not begin to understand the mechanism, but as I understand it, I read somewhere that the body accepts radium as calcium. Like it thinks, oh, hi, friend. Uh Come on in. It doesn't put up the barriers that it would normally. If it was a foreign substance. Yeah, it it feels like storing it in your bones and stuff. Yeah, wherever calcium would go. So, the worse Pierre felt, the more driven he seemed to be to work. You know, work, 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 work. I don't know if he sensed the end was near. He just wanted to get things done in his life, his bucket list, before he 
kicked it or whatever, but Marie was sort of taking a break from work anyway. She's making radioactive gooseberry jelly and sewing radioactive little girl in doll clothes and dusting her radioactive house. Well, uh, she had to make sure Irene was getting a little older and she had to make sure that she was getting an education too. And she hadn't been around her mom when she was little, so she might have felt a little, you know, maternal guilt. It comes with the job, you know. So that's she took true. it. She took the time. Well, and she kept saying, please, just spend time with us. Spend time with us. And he, you know, of course, would be like, work, work, work. He is an unrepentant workaholic, and she has repented a little Mm -hmm. and is taking a break. So she didn't go to the lab with him every day anymore. And she even said, Pierre, if it wasn't for you, yourself, I might actually stop work. I've accomplished, I think, enough. (laughs) I, you know. And it was really 20 years of absolute grind. That cool egg was 20 years ago. (laughs) We need another cool egg. So they took one last vacation in the country, which reminds me of that scene from Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette. Like, everybody's lying in fields of flowers and... Going to get milk from the local farm. And and just frolicking and having fun as a family. They did this family thing. How sweet. Get them grounded again. So the week they got back, Pierre was walking back from a work lunch on a rainy day, slipped on a wet curb, and was killed instantly by a passing horse-drawn cart. That fast. Sorry I didn't lead up to that for you. But that's <laughs> what it felt like to Marie Curie, too. Yeah, and that morning they'd had a spat, which, oh. Can you imagine carrying around that guilt for the rest of your life? I mean, it was just a regular spat that any couple has. He asked her if she was coming to the lab. She said, i got to get the kids ready for school. You know, and he just stormed out. So spectators went through Pierre's pockets, found out who he was from his calling cards, contacted the Sorbonne, who then had to go and tell the family. First they told Grandpa, and the first thing he said is, My son is dead? What was he dreaming of this time? Oh, and... When they told Marie, she was just incredulous. This had never even occurred to her that something like this could happen. And she said, Pierre is dead. Dead? Absolutely dead. It's like she had to tell herself over and over again. So, here's a quote from a book that Eve Curie wrote years afterward. Now, keep in mind, Eve was not even quite two when her father died. So, she is kind of basing this on her mother's personality, I think. Here's the quote. It is commonplace to say that a sudden catastrophe may transform a human being forever. Nevertheless, the decisive influence of these minutes upon the character of my mother, upon her destiny, and that of her children, cannot be passed over in silence. Marie Curie did not change from a happy young wife to an inconsolable widow. The metamorphosis was less simple and more serious. From the moment when those three words, Pierre is dead, reached her consciousness, A cape of solitude and secrecy fell upon her shoulders forever. Madame Curie, on that day in April, became not only a widow, but at the same time a pitiful and incurably lonely woman. And that will bring us to the end of part one of our coverage of Marie Curie. Who knew she had so much to her life, but there's a whole episode ahead because she's a new woman now. And she has a new life to forge without Pierre. Thank you so much for listening. Bye! If you liked what you heard today, with the possible exception of our singing voices, please tell a few friends about the show or leave a review for us on iTunes. There is a whole Pinterest board for Marie Curie already, so head over there for all the rabbit holes you could ever wish to go down. There's a board for every episode, so take your pick. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The History Chicks. The end song is Made of Stars by Xavier and Ophelia. The History Chicks is part of the Panoply Network, a division of Slate.com. 